Hello and welcome to the Everything Is Black and White podcast. It's time for a special episode. What I'm about to bring you is an interview with John Champion. His name is one you may recognise. His voice is certainly one I think you should recognise for he's a legendary broadcaster and has covered some of the most memorable Newcastle United games of recent times. In this episode, we talk about two of them. The win over Leeds at Ellen Road when Sir Boy Robson did a jig of delight on the touchline. And that famous night in Rotterdam against Feyenoord when Craig Bellamy scored at the death to send Newcastle through to the next round of the Champions League. But we also talk about modern day Newcastle night and the takeover and the impact it has had on the club. And that's where we begin. This chat was recorded in the week Newcastle announced an additional thousand season tickets would go on sale to fans. And I started this conversation asking John about his thoughts on the demand for a seat at St James's Park. Ah, it's fantastic. And and it's you know, without getting into the sort of the rights and wrongs of of the where the ownership comes from now, it's just lovely to see a club that's being cared for again because so many times you would go in the Ashley era and it was a bit like visiting the Marie Celeste you know the ship cast out at sea where all the crews disappeared and the lights are on but nobody's home you know it, nobody mm-hmm. seemed to be a steward of the club and I, you know I would talk to people that I've known there for years club employees behind the scenes and some of the team staff and you know it, it was all so downbeat and they couldn't see a way out of it so to see now a, a club that's actually got a path towards a potentially glorious future is is uplifting it really is no, more so i mean i'm all right to just ask quickly just about your opinion on on eddie howe and what you, how you think he's done so far in Newcastle. Yeah, i mean um i think he's done really well i i, I mean as you'll have gathered he's a pretty understated guy i've dealt with him quite a bit at bournemouth and even at burnley when he had that one year there and i really like him because he's not going to shout from the rooftops but he's going to quietly get on with the job um so I, I think, you know, he took a long time out of the game, didn't he? He could have gone back, could have gone to Celtic, bided his time and a really good opportunity has, has come up. So what, what interests me with Eddie is whether he is, if you equate it to Manchester City, you know, new ownership, a lot of money coming into, into a, a proud club that needed to be rebuilt from the bottom up. You know, is he going to be the Mark Hughes, the guy that has first dibs at it, takes them so far and then gets replaced? Or is he going to be the Roberto Mancini, the guy that, wins the league title for the first time. I, I'll be fascinated to see how that plays out. And indeed, indeed, what the degree of financial support is for him. Because, yeah, they've spent quite a bit of money, but it's not just been open a checkbook and spend, 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 spend. It's been considered recruitment so far, which is very much his style. Hmm. I also think that Dan Ashworth is a big part of that now as well. Definitely, and that's refreshing as well. It's not been a scattergun approach. You know, the, the top two targets in January they didn't get. They've gone back in again this summer. It shows you that they're kind of... It's, it would be very easy just to say, like, open the checkbook and go after everybody, but they seem to be very yeah. focused. And... I just I just think past experience with other clubs shows us this is not about winning the league next year. This is about building something sustainable that maybe in four or five seasons is capable of being in, in contention for that and is knocking on the door of the Champions League as well. Hmm. And just, I mean, the Premier League in general, I mean, how good is it, do you think, that we, we hopefully in you know a couple of years' time will have another team like West Ham, like Leicester, like Wolves, you know, trying to upset that established order of the, the, the so-called top six. I do think we need it. You know, Newcastle played that role, didn't they, in their time? Everton, for a while, were knocking on the door and almost got into the Champions League one year when David Moyes was was there. Um, I was I was really pleased to see West Ham giving it a good go. Leicester, I just think, was a freak of nature. I mean, it was extraordinary. And even two months before the end of the season, I was looking at this and 
thinking there's no way they're going to do this. And then I happened to be commentating on the Leicester-Liverpool game when Vardy scored that magnificent volley on the run. And that was the first time when I thought at the King Power that night, this could actually happen. Um, and I'm a, I am, you probably gathered from this conversation, in the midst of a sport that is primarily a business these days, I'm a real romantic. Um, and and I, I love the storylines. I love the peaks and troughs. I love the moments of emotion a la Bobby Robson, a la Craig Bellamy. So... Um, I, I love the underdog to have a, a a real shot at something. And I just think it benefits the league as a whole because otherwise it gets dull. I don't want to see wonderful teams though they are. I don't want to see Manchester City and Liverpool only vying for the league season after season after season. Just as 15 years ago, I didn't want to see Manchester United and Arsenal being the contenders for the league season after season after season. So, yeah, anyone else that tries to join the top table, I think is a very welcome visitor and hopefully a guest that's going to stay for a long time rather than just one or two seasons. Fingers crossed. And just a final question on the modern day. You mentioned you'd gone back and you'd, you'd, you'd been working for the, the, the My United game. I mean, it was a tremendous atmosphere and I think it was a, valuable, a very valuable point in the end as well. I mean, compared to the last time you were back, I'm not sure when that was, the, I mean, the, the difference in the atmosphere, the flags being back, I mean, it doesn't take... You know, it's a genius to see the difference. But in, in your words, I mean, just how much of a difference did you notice in terms of the, the fans and the atmosphere? I felt that a great club had been resuscitated. That's how I put it. That um, a patient that I worried about because its condition was getting worse and worse suddenly had life breathed back into it and was en route to recovery. And there were echoes as I saw the flag. I mean, it's a different generation of fans now. Um Many of them weren't even alive when Keegan's Cavaliers were doing what they were doing. And then, you know, the, the, the wonderful Bobby Robson team that, that followed. But that spirit is still there. And those that were there in the Keegan years have obviously told the next generation about what it was like, what this club potentially can be, just what a thrilling ride they can provide and how it, can, it will never be dull. So it was, it was a bit like a throwback. It was, I think the last time I'd been to St. James's Park with as much animation as that was a couple of occasions, probably. I remember Alan Pardew's first game, um, beating Liverpool, Andy Carroll scored from distance. I remember commentating on that. And that seemed, because at the time, the full effect of the Ashley years hadn't been felt. I think there was obviously scepticism about the managerial appointment, but the crowd was still capable of rousing itself and echoing those days of yesteryear. But then there was this long fallow period before that. It was probably Shearer's testimonial. So that would be the, the better comparison. That night of the swirling scarves with Shearer's testimonial, albeit a very different occasion, I think I would jump from there all the way through to uh, my last visit, end of December. Uh, the fallow period enveloped everything in between. But no, Newcastle were clearly on the way back. Left in a crumpled heat, but Newcastle importantly have the ball. And here's Noel Solano for Newcastle. And he's made it for... And does a jig of delight on the touchline and then remembers that he's nearly 69. Joy unconfined amongst the travelling hordes. Having watched that back, listen to it, what's the first thing that kind of springs into your, into your mind? Uh, what great days they were for Newcastle compared to some of the times that have gone since. Um, and also the fact it was Newcastle leads two of the great northern powerhouses playing each other and then Look, relatively speaking, what's happened to both clubs in the in the interim period. But I suppose my overriding thought, seeing that, is just seeing Sir Bobby on the touchline, so animated and so full of joy and happiness. 
and that being translated to the hordes of Newcastle fans behind the goal as well. So it's it's one I still remember vividly. Um, my frustration with it actually was that I think I said and I saw because at Elland Road um, the commentary position is right over where the dugouts are. So Sir Bobby was right down below us as I remember it, and I could see him doing this jig. And I mentioned it, but by the time the camera cut to it, he'd sort of finished doing the main bit of his dance. So we never got to see the best bit. But it was just a wonderful, expressive moment. I think from memory, had Newcastle come from 3-1 down? Yeah, it was 3-1. Yeah, 3-1 uh, down at that point. And the, the victory took them, or kept them at the top of the, the Premier League. Yeah, they, and they, I think they were top at Christmas, weren't they, because of that? Yeah, if I, if they were on to beat Arsenal, Highbury, yeah. Um, yeah. which was 3-1. Um, yeah, so it was, and, just, it was just expressive of Newcastle at that time, really. You, I mean, to me... Uh, the Keegan entertainers of the mid-90s were just... They were the most fun team, I think, that has been in the Premier League era. But the sides that followed under Bobby Robson at times weren't that far short. And he, they produced some wonderful moments. And I think I was particularly struck by that Bobby Robson jig. A, because we knew that at some point he was coming towards the end because of his age, as we mentioned there. But he'd been... You shouldn't really be influenced by this, but he'd been so wonderfully generous to all of us commentators over the years in terms of information always being available, always returning your phone call. Um, you know, if you needed to know little things ahead of a game, like someone was carrying an injury and might not make the, the full match, or you wanted to know what the lineup was, as long as you promised not to tell anyone else, he was always available with that information. Um, and just very kind, it would always be come in and have a cup of tea or a glass of wine after the game. Um, he was just such a lovely man. So I think there's inevitably the human aspect of it um, came across in that moment, just to see a man that had been so good to so many of us um, at the helm for a wonderful moment like that. And, and how important is it, you know, for you to capture that moment in that way, to get across to the people watching at home, or maybe you just have the commentary on in the background, that Sir Bobby Robson was so delighted at the goal and, you know, the, the way the game had panned out? I think it's important you convey that. Hopefully the pictures do the majority of that and obviously the surge of crowd noise. And I think as a commentator, um, the hardest bit is knowing when not to talk, actually. So I said quite a lot over that clip. Uh, maybe I shouldn't have said quite so much because the pictures were evocative and told their own tale. But at the same time, if I hadn't mentioned the jig, the match director in charge of all the cameras wouldn't have cut to the shot of Bobby Robson on the touchline at that point necessarily anyway. So... There's so much that goes through your mind, but I think in a moment like that, in a moment of high drama and high emotion, you just let the feel of 40,000 people around you, the overriding emotion, carry you, and you hope that you come up with something that's reasonably reflective of what that moment is. And if people are still talking about it 20 years on, then I, I guess you can quietly pat yourself on the back and say, well, maybe you know, maybe you found the words to, to reflect the moment, but for every time that you get it right, there's probably 10 times that you get it horribly wrong. And where does something like that come from? You know, the, you know, the, the, the jig on the touchline. I mean, I'm just wondering: is it just something that like, it just comes natural to you, and then maybe a few days later, a few weeks later, a few years later, someone might come up to the in, in the street, and that's when you think, "Oh, we're there." You know, that stayed with somebody. Mm. And where, where does it all come from? Do you think? Um, it's strange, isn't it? Really, because you could never pre-plan any sort of line like that. And in fact, in my experience, the lines that people come back to you and talk about are the ones that are the most off the cuff. I mean, if you think of the most classic line of football commentary in, in English culture, it's surely Kenneth Wollstoneholm in the 1966 World Cup final. 
they think it's all over. It is now. And there's no way that he could have thought of that in advance or scripted it or tried to come up with a clever line to reflect the moment at which England clinched the World Cup. And I think when I was a young commentator coming through on Match of the Day, I had John Motson and Barry Davis as my two mentors, two very different commentators stylistically, two brilliant commentators. But they would say to me, look, don't try and pre-prepare any sort of a moment. Just let the emotion, let what you're seeing, what you're feeling in your heart carry you at that moment in time. And I suppose that's what I did that day with the, the Nobby Solano goal and the reaction of Sir Bobby. Um, it, it was just, it was what I felt. And I think that's, you know, in an age where so many games are now commentated upon by commentators who are not there because of companies trying to save money or, or whatever, uh, not Premier League games, but other matches, um, I think it shows the value of the commentator actually being there in the midst of the throng to be able to feel what the overriding emotion of a particular moment in time is. You mentioned how the picture showed, you know, the surge of the of the crowd and, and, and what, what have you. I mean, how difficult is, is, it, is it for you, although you have to use the emotion, not to get too wrapped up into it because at the same time you have to be kind of down the middle and, and you know, your job is to be down the middle, so to speak, yeah. Yeah, particularly in a game like that where it's two domestic teams. So you're aware that there are probably as many Leeds fans watching as Newcastle fans and you've got to be fair to both. And it was rammed into me from my very earliest days in local radio in the BBC that you had to be right down the middle. I think it's slightly different. I know the other clip that you've got lined up is the Bellamy clip. I think it's slightly different when you're broadcasting to a UK audience and it's a UK team against a team from another country. Slightly different, not massively different. Um, so I, I think there's a slightly different balance to be applied in that instance. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not wildly happy with my commentary over the Bellamy goal. I know people talk about it, which is very nice, but really they're not talking about the commentary. They're talking about the moment. And that's, that's usually um, what I would say about all of this. Yes, you might find words that are vaguely appropriate, but it's really the moment that stays with people. Um, and if, if your commentary is a little part, is 5% of that moment, then fine. But 95% of it is either Nobby Solano and Bobby Robson dancing, or in the case of Craig Bellamy, the comeback, the late win, the drama, the circumstance, having lost the first three group stage games, making history. Hmm. Well, that's that's very similar to what, you know, what Clive said when I asked him about the, the, the Shearer goal. But I guess the very fact that I'm, I'm sitting here asking you um, about this Leeds game, what we are, we are dead, we'll be dead. Uh, we're 20, 21 years later, is it something like yeah. that? 2001, yeah. So, I, how does that make you? How does that make you feel? Because I know I've there was a list on a on a fanzine website, a Newcastle fanzine website, and that one that we're talking about now was also listed top of their top ten. So, is there a sense of I don't know, a like a bit of prior? You must get, it, I suppose, you must get fans from all clubs maybe sometime coming to you and saying this stood out for me, but. In general, how does it make you feel when you do get that, if, if you do get that? Well, I've got to be honest. I mean, it, it makes you feel nice. It makes you feel warm that your words have resonated. Um, but I don't think it makes you think that you're sort of cock of the walk or anything like that, because you know I could produce to you a hundred moments where I cringe at things that I've said uh, in, in significant moments in matches. Uh, I'm my own biggest critic. I'll, if I... I drive to Newcastle and call the game I'll be beating myself up on the way home you know at dead of night for something that I either said or didn't say or something I could have phrased better or a moment that I feel I didn't capture poss uh, possibly as well as I, I should have done so because of that I'm never satisfied so it's it's quite nice that people are still talking about things 20 years on but I, I have to stress I'm under no illusions I don't, 
I really don't think that they're talking about the commentary. I think they're talking about the moment. I can't, you know, we're, we're just there as a, a conveyor of a pinnacle moment. And hopefully you find a word or a phrase that stays with people. And I mean, you've talked to Clive Tilsley and he's produced many of those over the years. Manchester United winning the Champions League in 99 would be prime among them. I mean, if you were to ask me about my favourite Newcastle moments, yeah, Bellamy would be in there, the Bobby Robson jig, but I'd have other things. I mean, I one that stays with me is Alan Shearer's testimonial, which we did live on ITV. I mean, what a night that was. And the moment when he hobbled on, stricken by injury, to score the penalty at, at, the, at the Gallagate end is, just, you know, is etched in my memory. Uh, forever were you, were you aware that Ferdinand was going to go down in the box did you did you uh, feel something was coming it, it, I think we were made we, we always get either formally or informally some sort of briefing either you know I referred earlier to how helpful Bobby Robson was it might have been a phone call the night before the game before a, a proper competitive fixture but I mean having talked to Alan Shearer in the build-up to the game and those that were organizing the match the the circumstances were so special not just because it was him but because he got injured and because he couldn't really play a, a proper part in his own testimonial. Um, so we knew that something was going to happen that was going to present a penalty opportunity for him. So, yeah, we um, we weren't falling off our chairs in surprise when what happened happened. <laughs> I think you said something like you, you kind of hinted in the commentary that, you know, like it, it was expected that he was going to come back onto the pitch. And I'm just wondering, again, just in general, there's so much... Or it seems, from my point of view, there's so much responsibility on on yourself and other commentators to to capture that moment. Do you feel that responsibility? Um, that's a good question. Do you feel the responsibility? You don't. I think I'd answer that by saying you're acutely aware that you don't want to let the viewer down because they're tuning in and they want to feel they're getting the best service, the best reflection of the game possible. And by extension, you don't want to let yourself down because we all trade on our reputations people you know generally the the modern consensus is everyone doesn't is pretty negative towards commentators they think they could do a better job and maybe they could um so i think you just want to you just want to do something that people are going to be generally on the side of approving of rather than disapproving of if, if that answers the question so it's not a enormous weight on the shoulders but you know when i pitch up at the world cup in November, I won't be wanting to get too many things wrong with all those big audiences that you get for those those games. So yeah, you're 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 acutely aware of not not letting the side down. Because as the commentator, you for 90 minutes you are the voice representing an entire team of production people who are all putting heart and soul into making that program, that match coverage, the best that it can possibly be. So one misstep from the likes of me can which is then written about in the papers because the TV critics will seize upon it. You know, you've ruined everyone's night. So you're you're certainly aware of that, Andrew. Just going back to just to that Leeds game briefly. I mean, like we said, Newcastle were top of the league. It was a, a great side, and although you know in the end they didn't they didn't win the league. What was it like covering Newcastle at that time with Sir Boy Robson as well in the dugout? Uh, great. Just great. I mean, I think it was particularly good because I'd lived and worked through the Keegan years and, and loved it. And I've got a certain family affinity to football in the Northeast because my mother comes from Blythe. My grandmother's family were all from Gateshead. I was brought up in York, which was only a, less than an hour on the train. So we spent a lot of time in the Northeast, which is in no way to say I'm a Newcastle fan. But I just think that from an early age, I had a, an, a proper understanding of what it's like to be a Newcastle fan, that sort of condition of life of being 
a Newcastle supporter, where your first waking thought every morning is for your football team. And for that reason, going to St. James's Park has always been one of the biggest treats of my career. I was last there just after Christmas. I don't get there so much now being based in the US, but I was there for the Manchester United game just after Christmas. And it's, I can't describe to you the warmth in my heart when I drive up the A1, past Washington Services, come down past the Angel of the North, and the, the scene opens up and you can look to your right across the city and see St. James's Park up on the hill overlooking the city centre. And that just stirs something within me, really. Um, so I, you know, I can't grandly claim to properly understand what it's like to be a Newcastle fan, but I do think I've got a bit of a clue. Um, and, I, and I simply love going there. So allied to that, you then had the great entertainers of Keegan. And, you know, I was at the, lucky enough to be at the microphone as a radio commentator and then on, for match of the day uh, for some of the most dramatic ups and downs of that. And I, when that subsided, I thought, well, I think I've seen the pinnacle of what I'm going to see in terms of entertainment from Newcastle. And then this second team came along, which was capable of lifting you out of your seat with excitement as well. So uh, it was it was a thrill to sort of get the proper Newcastle back, in a sense, if that makes if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, yeah. Kalu. Oh, space for Bombarda. It's 2-1. Oh, Newcastle, be careful. Shearer. It's a good jump. It's Kieran Dyer. Fast Ben Wondren. Oh, and Dyer blocked. Bellamy is in. Oh, extraordinary. So, I mean, first off, again, what's the yeah. first thing that kind of springs to mind when you when you watch that back? Um, I cringe because my voice breaks. <laughs> I really do. I think I probably count on the fingers of one hand the number of times that's happened to me in my career where my voice is just not at that moment has just been overcome by I suppose the enormity of what's happened and it's just it's cracked and it's croaked so I I have to tell you I hate listening to that clip I love the moment well done Craig Bellamy well done Newcastle but I I, I it's it, th this is a really weird one because amongst Newcastle fans you're right I mean um if I'm in Newcastle and in their company um quite a few of them want to talk about various moments over the years and that's the one above all others that they want to talk about in terms of the commentary and yet if there was one Newcastle commentary I'd love to be able to redo it's that one without the voice breaking uh, and just be a little bit more I was going to say level-headed but I think it's the fact I wasn't particularly level-headed that people quite liked so mm. it's a conundrum really because you always try as a broadcaster you always want to try and be in control and yet sometimes the moments when you're not in control are the ones that resonate the most so maybe there's a lesson in there for me yeah, I, mean, I think the, the word resonate there is what I was going to say about the first bit of that clip when Bombarda scores and you, 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 you kind of put out a warning because I can remember sitting at home watching that and I think that's maybe why it stuck with us because when they score, as a fan, I'm thinking, he's right, you know, Newcastle have got to be careful here. And I guess, do you ever, do you ever have a moment when you sit back and you, you think about the words you say and how they do resonate with, with fans and how they, they, they do leave a mark on, on them? I'm, I, only when fans actually talk to you about it, which is it, it's few and far between that you have those conversations. I can't pretend that every time I walk down Granger Street, someone comes up to me and says, hey, what about, you know, this commentary or that commentary? That just, that's not my life. That doesn't happen. Um, so how can I put this? We commentate on so many games that it, it tends to be, it's a bit like battery farming at times. You, you prepare for your game, you go to your game, you do the game, hopefully reasonably well, you shelve it away, you put your notes away in a cupboard, and more often than not, you never think about it again. 
obviously the happenings that night in Rotterdam, there have been reasons to think about it again. Um, uh, because, you know, people like yourself, periodically, if there's an anniversary of it coming up, we'll ring up and say, hey, do you remember this? And what are your thoughts on that? And, and it's always nice to reminisce. So I'm not one that lingers on the words, but I suppose I'm listening to that element of it back. I'm quietly satisfied with the, the bombarder bit, you know, be careful, because what I can tell you about that moment, and it's another illustration of how important it is to be in the stadium and be in the midst of it and feel it, was just that the two-goal lead felt very fragile for some reason that night. It felt ever so fragile. And there was also the thought that if Newcastle actually did this, they would make history. No team had lost the first three games of a group stage and gone through before. So it was significantly odds against. For them to go two goals up, you're thinking this is actually going to happen. But it was never a totally convincing lead to me. So when it, when it, when it went 2-1, my thought was, uh, they're on the point of making history, but they might not. So that, hence that, be careful. Um, and that's also the sort of thing you can probably just about get away with on a UK versus non-UK team broadcast. So, again, to bring in Clive Tildesley, think of Liverpool winning the Champions League against Milan, coming from three down. I think Liverpool scored their first. And Clive said on ITV that night to the nation, something about, hello, hello, as if this could be, this could be, it's unlikely to be, but this could be something special. I think the... Um, oh, Newcastle, be careful, is in that same category of uh, it's unlikely to upset the apple cart, but it just might, what's just happened. So that, that's how I would phrase that, really. So I'm quietly, quietly quite happy with that. I don't think it was too biased. Uh, hopefully it, it sort of touched a nerve with a few anxious Newcastle fans. Um, I'm probably happier with that than I am with the commentary on Bellamy. <laughs> well, going back to the Bellamy moment, when Dyer's shot and it's saved... And you, you, you do genuinely sound a little bit disappointed that the, the goal hasn't gone in. I know it's you in the moment, but you know you, you do kind of go, oh, like, is that again something because it's, a, it's an English team going against a, a European side, you can kind of get away, like you said, with a bit more of that emotion um, than you would if it was Newcastle versus Leeds, for instance? Yes, yeah, because if it was Newcastle against Leeds, you'd be having to reflect much more on both sides of the emotional divide at that moment. Whereas with apologies to any fine old fans that were watching that night, you know, they weren't significant enough in number to really be considering in terms of their reaction to it. So you knew that 95% of your audience, well, were probably Newcastle fans and that the, the neutrals would be backing Newcastle as well. So you're on fairly safe ground in, in that, but you're right. I mean, I, I think looking at the clip again, you can hear in my voice that I kind of thought the chance had gone when it didn't go in first time. And then Bellamy to score from the angle um, came as a surprise. It did. It, just because, you know, tight angle. And it, it it takes a millisecond to process the emotional impact of what's just happened. So, yeah, you're dealing with the disappointment of the goal not being scored. And then suddenly it is. So I suppose that adds to the general air of um, slight chaos about my commentary. <laughs> yeah, it was a very it was a chaotic game. And, I mean, did you expect, we mentioned the context of that game. Like you say, it was, it was quite a for Newcastle to make history. I mean, going into that game, do you think there was an expectation on Newcastle to actually manage to get through to the to the next stage? Or was it kind of a, a hit and hope? Um, I think that an air of expectation had grown because I, I remember seeing our match allocations on ITV. And after they'd lost their first three, there was this game in Rotterdam that had my name against it. And I'm thinking, crikey, 
how are we going to bring that one alive? Because, you know, Newcastle, sadly, they're going to be out. They're not going to have a chance. It's going to be a, a dead game, and that's going to be a long night. So then Newcastle win match day four, and I'm thinking, well, yeah, maybe it's not so bad. Then they win match day five, and suddenly you've got the game of the game of the, the group stage of the entire competition on your hands. So a trip to Rotterdam, whilst always pleasant, suddenly took on a whole new meaning because there was a real edge to it. So I think I, I do remember in the, the couple of weeks building up to that game that there was a sense that Newcastle could actually achieve the apparently unachievable. So there was a real uh, air of expectation by the, the time that the game came round. And then to jump into a two-goal lead, yeah, they were. it seemed like it was going to be straightforward. So I think that's what adds to the night as well, isn't it? That to start with, it was a near impossible task. It became a possibility. Then they were going to do it. They were going to cruise it. You know, it was feet up, cigars out. And then their legs were swept from beneath them. And then they went and won it again at the death. So... What better sporting narrative than that? Well, you said earlier that like you like you enjoy the twists and turns, and I guess mm. as a, as a game goes, there's probably few better examples than than that one in Rotterdam. Absolutely, yeah. I, I mean, you you need a. I think for a, a dramatic sporting narrative, you need the expectation of what's going to happen to be entirely overturned. Then you need it to swing back the other way in remarkable circumstances. Then you need a bit of doubt over the outcome. And then you need a final twist. And that game had all of those and and more. And, I mean, Newcastle are such a heart-on-sleeve club that I think a moment like that is amplified because the reaction of the fans is just extraordinary. However many or however few there are, depending on the circumstances and the venue, um, the soundtrack that they provide, the roar that they provide is unlike anything else. And that, as a, as a for a TV broadcaster, also helps you because we trade off the emotion that those fans produce and it can make our job easier because quite honestly it, you know if you commentate on a big goal particularly at St James's you don't have to say a lot you can just shout this I've lost count of the number of times I would have shouted say Alan Shearer's name you let the ball hit the back of the net and then the crowd does the rest of it for the next 15-20 seconds yeah in my mind when I was researching this I'm pretty sure you did the one against Aston Villa when he side foots it into the into the corner yeah and again and i'm pretty sure you literally you you just you do just shout shio and it is it is one of those goals which stands out again um you know as one of his his finest um just in terms of the emotion that you mentioned and the, mm. the fans you, you know you see the fans going crazy in the stands and the noise is, is electric how again just how easy or difficult is it for you not to once again get wrapped up in that because i mean the scenes in Rotterdam that night were, were unbelievable, especially coming as a final, you know, final minute winner, Champions yeah. League, the context, everything rolled into one. How, how do you, how did you manage to deal with that? Um, I think the first thing you're conscious of and you're taught as a young broadcaster is not to get in the way. So the power of pictures is so much greater than the power of words ordinarily. So really, when a, when a big moment happens, um, a lot, you talked about, do I feel the pressure on my shoulders? We're forgetting that the match director in charge of the cameras should be the one feeling the pressure on his shoulders or her shoulders, because those are the images that we're all going to see for years to come. So I think he or she has the greater responsibility at that moment, probably, because if I mess up the commentary, the moment still exists on tape for eternity. If they mess up the TV coverage, then that moment could be lost entirely. I mean, there are not so much these days because there were so many cameras at grounds, but there are instances of big goals in big games not existing in tape libraries of big television companies now because 
you know, they were on a replay at the time it was scored and technology wasn't what it was today and the director mucked up. So there are some great moments that we've never actually seen and enjoyed properly via TV. So there's just the greater responsibility in that sense. But coming back to your original question, I think the mark of an experienced broadcaster in big moments like that is to be unafraid just to shut up and let the pictures tell the story and let the crowd do their thing. So, yes, you, you shout and you hollow when Bellamy does what he does. And then hopefully you don't just continue talking and talking and talking and talking and talking because that to me would ruin it. You need to let you need to let it soak in. And I think the number of words that a commentator produces is almost in inverse proportion to the amount of attention that people pay to them. I think you can become you can if you're not careful, you can turn the viewer off by talking too much because I don't need to tell the viewer how wonderful or significant the Bellamy moment is. They, you know, you knew. Anyone watching that game knew. So I don't need to go into granular detail of what this means. I just need to shout his name, hopefully with a rather stronger voice than I managed to produce in that moment. And then, you know, the chaos unfolds, the celebrations unfold in front of our eyes and job done. Is that the only bit you mentioned before, like, you know, is you would, you would if you had your time again, is that the only bit you would think you would take back is the is the fact that your voice grows a little bit the rest of it you know you're right with it's just the yeah 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 i mean you're never going to be word perfect the perfect commentary doesn't exist never has never will um we all strive for it we're never getting going to get particularly close to it so i could have improved the words but i i really don't think that matters it's just i cringe and it's only me because the voice just sounds like a six-year-old <laughs> at that point just finally i mean how much do you enjoy you know doing the job you do it, it must be I, I i mean i i don't envy you in one sense because you know you've got all them people watching you and listening to you but for you you've done it for many years i mean i, I assume you, you must just love doing it i do it's never felt like a job i'm just i'm the luckiest person going really to have done this for i think i'm 38 years and counting including my radio my radio career and i had no idea what i wanted to do in life um and i i got a lucky break by a local radio through playing in a cricket match one day, getting a few runs and being interviewed. And someone at the radio station liked my voice and gave me a chance to, um, they were setting up, this was in York, my home city, and they were setting up a sports department and they wanted someone to go out and report on a bit of football and rugby that winter. And they thought, he sounds confident on the air. I'd actually done this interview from the clubhouse in the, at the cricket ground where I'd, I'd done reasonably well in the game that day. And I'd had several pints before I did the interview. So they said, you sounded very fluent and you bet I sounded fluent. And that was more to do with Sort of four pints of Tetley's Yorkshire Bitter than anything else. So I was so lucky to get a start in it. And then I, I just sort of dabbled in it and people seemed to like what I did. And I never I never had to give it a second thought. It was just something I could do. And I can't explain to you why. And that's progressed into this career through local radio, national radio, national TV, you know, great thrill to be on Match of the Day and then ITV. And I think, you know, this World Cup will be my ninth. And um, and then to have a, to, to be asked to come to America and, and, be a, a football commentator over here where everything's done very very differently in terms of the construction of a tv broadcast it's a real it's a different challenge um if you'd said to me you know 30 odd years ago this was going to be my life i'd have said you're stupid you've got no idea people don't live a life like that but um i i have i've been lucky enough to travel the world many times at someone else's expense and and remarkably it's still going on so i hope it does for for many more years i, I think Martin Tyler's 20 years older than I am, so I hope I've got a few years left in the year.